TED Audio Collective. This is Zigzag, a podcast about changing the course of capitalism, journalism, and women's lives. I'm Manoush. <laughs> I mean, I'm Jen Poyant. I <laughs> got you guys. It's Manoush's co-founder, Jen, here, and I'm coming at you from the Rockaway Beach boardwalk. Yes, Rockaway Beach in Queens, New York. The one that the Ramones sang about. That's right, I'm hosting the show this week from the Rockaway Beach boardwalk. It's November, so it's pretty quiet. You'll hear the waves, some planes, a few seagulls here and there, maybe some surfers walk by. So why? Well, A, Manoush deserves a little breather from writing and hosting, so she gets to edit me this week. And B, because our show is about Meat World this week. That's M-E-A-T, Meat World. What is that? Well, according to the Urban Dictionary, Meat World refers to the physical world, the world outside the internet. So far, the second season of ZigZag has been about trust and information, mostly how it spreads online. But believe it or not, trust and information also still live in Meat World. Manoush and I are going to go into how places like libraries, decent public schools, and public parks like the one I'm sitting in right now may matter more than ever in helping to keep people connected and civically engaged. It's season two, episode five of ZigZag. Stick with us. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Okay, ZigZag fans, let's get to know each other a little better. Hi, Manoush and Jen. This is T, and I'm calling from the edge of the forest near the desert in central Oregon. Hi, this is Chaim Rubenstein from Ranana, Israel. This is Mitch in Chantilly, Virginia. This is Catherine. I'm calling from Missoula, Montana. This is Chris from Austin, Texas. We asked you if you have public places where people get together in your community and just naturally bond, engage, support each other. Most of you said a resounding yes. Here's T from Oregon. I live in a really small town, and I'm pleased to report that there are numerous places where folks of different income levels and races and whatever else get together. Post office, that's the great leveler, and you don't have to be assumed to be a liberal or conservative to wind up in the post office doing your business. So that's a good one. Chaim from Israel, I love your example of a very special type of park. I'm sitting right next to one, actually. I'm here in the local skateboard park, one of over a dozen great public parks around the country. These parks offer a great place for people to challenge themselves and push their limits, especially those that tend to be drawn to screens and video games all the time. From the skaters in their teens or 20s, all the way up to my buddies and I in our 50s, if you're here to shred, there is mutual respect and appreciation for everyone's efforts and abilities. Totally agree. I feel like I miss the phase of my teenage years or even in my 20s to learn skating, honestly. But we do have a skate park here, and I'm always stoked to see people of all ages shredding. 
Let's go back to our friend T for a second out west. For a while, we were homeless, technically, and we were camping and hanging around in a teeny tiny travel trailer and living in the woods. It was great fun. And found that in the campgrounds, we really met a lot of different people from a lot of different income levels and backgrounds. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, T. I'm really happy to hear that these public campgrounds were a safe haven for you and your family. Now, some of you live in places where there's just not a lot of public investment in spaces like these, like Mitch from Chantilly, Virginia. In my specific area around Chantilly, the only places like that would be either indoor or outdoor malls. And these are not really public places. They're controlled by private owners. And if there's anything that would disrupt the commerce within those areas, I'm sure they'd be shut down. For instance, would you be able to hand out leaflets on anything or, you know, bring people together to discuss uh, an issue? I'm not so sure that would be allowed. Thank you, Mitch. I feel you. I actually know the area you're talking about pretty well. I grew up pretty close to Chantilly in a place called Reston, Virginia. The whole town was basically planned around this idea of creating a lot of spaces for people to run into each other and interact. There were public pools and pedestrian walkways throughout the town. And in fact, someone from Reston called in to tell us about it. Here's Chris Streppa. I wanted to talk a little bit about Reston in Virginia. When it was first developed, it was um, divided up into numerous village centers, and there was no cohesive place for folks to gather. Later on in its development, Reston Town Center came into play and provided a place where people could meet for dinner, go to movies, have fun in the skating rink during the holidays. They can meet each other for caroling and um, good cheer. It's become quite an interesting place for people to just find their center within this wonderful town. You guys, that awesome woman is my mom. Isn't she rad? She moved to Reston when it was first being developed because she wanted to raise us in a place that prized civic involvement, shared spaces, and good schools. Thank you, Mom. I love you. And thank you to everyone who sent those voice memos in. And Mitch, I'm sure you're not alone in wishing you had more spaces like the ones we heard about. Let's get back to the reason I'm hosting the show this week from the 91st Street Jetty, right here on the boardwalk in Rockaway. It's partially to express gratitude that I can raise my son here, and live in this community, similar to the one my mom raised me in. So let me set the scene. This boardwalk is like a concrete spine that runs along a six-mile stretch from Beach 9th Street to Beach 126th Street. It's right on the Atlantic Ocean and close to JFK, as you can hear. The Parks Department has landscaped it, sort of, and in the summer it's packed with New Yorkers who come to hang out and get a break from the heat in the concrete jungle. Rockaway's located technically within the city of New York, but it also feels like a small beach town. It's a peninsula about seven miles long. You can get here from Manhattan by taking the A train. Surfers do that all the time, believe it or not. Or the ferry or drive on the Belt Parkway. You've heard me talk about that on the show before. It's a very diverse community. To the west, towards Beach 126th Street, there's affluent neighborhoods full of million-dollar homes and families that have lived here for generations. 
Then there's a community of families comprised mostly of New York City firefighters and cops, along with lots of JFK airport workers. Then the further east you go, you get a mix of Caribbean, African-American neighborhoods, Russian immigrants, and then hipsters, artists, surfers. It's a very, very eclectic mix of people. And everyone here ends up on the boardwalk, particularly in the height of summer when millions of city dwellers also come to hang. The fact that this beach and boardwalk is a public park is a legacy of the legendary and some would say infamous power broker and city planner Robert Moses. In the summer, it's home to a vibrant community of high-end concessions where you can get really good burgers and beer, coffee, all the locals gather to party and play music. I actually spent many of my days last summer editing this very show on the boardwalk thanks to the surprisingly good Wi-Fi connection that the parks provide. I've lived here for seven years. I've had countless playdates, political debates, a few first dates, wedding celebrations, memorial services. I've watched live bands. I've watched surfers score amazing waves. And I've danced my face off right here where I'm standing. It's why I love living here. There's a community that's engaged and weird and fun. And over those seven years, what I didn't fully comprehend until now is that there's a name for what these experiences add up to. It's called social infrastructure. It's obviously not an entirely new concept, social infrastructure. But at the same time, the idea that modern life, our connectedness to each other, particularly online, has shifted so much in how we human beings relate to each other, it's also very real. Social media gets us all riled up, sometimes high with its seductiveness. Other times it leaves us oddly isolated, sitting in our homes on screens, feeling FOMO about what other people are doing out in the real world and meat world. By the way, thank you, Manoush, for turning me onto this term. I'm kind of embarrassed I didn't know it up until yesterday. Now I'm sure I will also come to overuse it. But let's get back to the other term we're talking about, social infrastructure. Manoush and I have this friend who loves the term and deeply believes in the concept. Eric Kleinenberg is a professor of sociology and director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at NYU. Manoush wanted to talk to him because he got this mild obsession with protecting social infrastructure. And he wrote a book about it, Palaces for the People. Eric's concerned that with the allure of our online connectedness, along with the rise in power that corporate culture has over our daily lives now, we may be starting to neglect the physical, public, and largely free spaces that literally bring us together, regardless of our class, race, gender, cultural background. Here's Manoush and Eric nerding out. Enjoy. What I've come to believe is that there is a, a social infrastructure that is just as real as the infrastructure for power or for water or for transit. And when we invest in social infrastructure, when we build places that work well, when we manage them well, when we maintain them, when we program them, they make it far more likely that we will have you know, healthy interactions and maybe even relationships. And when things really go well and we spend enough time in them, communities, cohesion. But when we have a neglected social infrastructure, mm. you know, when we let things fall apart, when we have uh, schools that are hostile environments, when the parks uh, are fenced up or aren't properly maintained, when the, when the subway is late all the time and the trains are too crowded, we become more hostile to one another. Yes. And, and we become <laughs> more likely to kind of turn inwards and to give up on the collective project. And so really, 
you know, by social infrastructure, palaces for the people, I'm talking about the core binding idea that makes society possible. And my fear is that in the last several decades, as we've turned towards this kind of more market logic for organizing our lives, Mm -hmm. we treat each other more transactionally. We have every reason to see ourselves in competition with one another, as opposed to in a collaborative and mutually supportive relationship with one another. And the consequences, I think, have, have been horrible for us socially, and even politically as a, as, a, as a democracy. I think we suffer when we're too much on our own. Okay, I want to dive into that because I think at first glance, people might be like, well, yeah, of course, safe schools, n- good libraries, a not crowded subway. I want all those things. Of course, that's good for society. But w- what's happened that made you think, I mean, you wrote an article, for example, for the New York Times op-ed section that was like number one for a long time. Like, why do you think people are gravitating towards this idea? What is happening? I mean, the situation, as you uh, like to refer to it. (laughs) Well, I think that uh, we see that there are palaces. And for most of us, the message is clear that they are not palaces for us, right? They are not palaces for the people. They're palaces for the 1%. And part of What's so grotesque about this moment in American life is the extraordinary levels of inequality that have come to dominate our uh, cities, uh, our suburbs, uh, our, our collective national life. And I think that you know part of what explains uh, our fall into the situation uh, it is a sense of of kind of hopelessness or even nihilism. The these these kind of contradictions, I think, are just too much to bear. And so we have been experiencing this attack on public institutions of all varieties. In fact, over the summer, uh, Forbes magazine published an article by an economist saying that libraries are obsolete as modern institutions. We don't need them anymore because we have the internet, you know, we have great technology, and we have Amazon, and their libraries just aren't worth the public expense. And so his proposal was that we knock down libraries and replace them with Amazon shops. And (laughs) I thought it was a joke too at first. I kept, I I thought someone was trolling me and they had like sent me a (laughs) link to this article they put up. Uh, But it it was absurd and yet it was serious. It was just an extreme version of an argument we hear all the time that in this day and age, you know, rather than look to the public sector for solutions to our problems or to improve our quality of life, we should expect that we'll get improvements from Apple and from Facebook and from Instagram and from Amazon. Well, and there are people who might be like, I have enough friends in my life, thank you very much, who I don't have time to see. Or, you know, I'm in touch all day long with my family online. Like, and as an older person, you and I are older people. I, I, I know. I can't even see. Over 40. <laughs> But people have said, like, don't think that online life isn't real life because it is. So are you saying, yeah, but it's a different kind of real life? I kind of am. Um, I don't think of Facebook, for instance, as a social infrastructure. You know, I got really frustrated because Mark Zuckerberg, right after the 2016 election, wrote this big letter to his two billion members. I don't know. Are they really two billion? Yes. Isn't that controversial now? No, they are no, two billion. Okay, are. Yeah. so we'll give you two billion, uh, Mr. Zuckerberg. And he wrote this letter saying Facebook should be the the social infrastructure for the 21st century and mm. see how all these amazing things it does. But the truth is that Facebook and social media and the internet that they, they can be great for 
interacting in some ways, but they're really only satisfying if they lead us to a face-to-face interaction mm-hmm. at the end of the day. If our relationships exist solely online, they can do some things for us. Like there's patient groups, you know, people who get to know each other and share knowledge through the internet. I'm no Luddite, you know, I'm as hooked on these things as anyone else is. But I also know that at the end of the day, if you if your social life is an online social life and it's not consummated in a face-to-face relationship where you're really with other people in real life, that's going to be hugely unsatisfying. And you know, what I realized when I read Zuckerberg's piece that the, that the reason that made me so frustrated mm-hmm. is that there is no one who understands and invests more in actual social infrastructure, physical places than Mark Zuckerberg and Apple and Google. Yeah. If you go, and I know you've been to these places, yep. if you go to the campuses that these companies maintain, they are the most glorious social infrastructures money can buy. They have the best architects in the world. They build places that balance, you know, personal space for sitting at your computer and getting your code written with collective areas where you have these magical serendipitous encounters and the engineering group gets together with the marketing team and you know you just wind up becoming friends over your free yoga class or you know your you know your tempeh lunch and <laughs> and 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 they are amazing places there's soccer fields on the Google campus you know there are bike paths they've built a, a small world but it's it's amazing social infrastructure for the small number of people who are lucky enough to be Google employees or Facebook employees. So what are you saying? Like, Mr. Zuckerberg, start putting your money into real-life towns and communities. Is that is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, Zuckerberg has started this philanthropy, the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, and they, I think the, the press release I read said that they want to eliminate all diseases. So, you know, he's he's ambitious. So, you know, again, we'll see what he does. But I think it's disingenuous for someone who build so much and spend so much money to create a place that works well for the people who work for his company. It's disingenuous to say that Facebook and Instagram are great social infrastructure. And by the way, like the thing that you can do to be a more connected, more politically engaged person is spend more time on the platform. But I also think that I don't expect the philanthropist to save us from this problem of inequality. I don't think that what's going to make the world a better place is that Zuckerberg and Larry and Sergey and Mike Bloomberg are going to give away so much money that the world will be a better place. I think that's what government is for. And I think that's why it's important for those companies to be you know, regulated and subjected to laws that are there to advance the common good. And... You know, I think if we expect the philanthropic sector to save us from this problem of polarization and inequality, you know, we'll be sadly disappointed. These kinds of issues need to be dealt with in the realm of of politics. Okay. Jen here again on the boardwalk. When we come back... We go back to the history books to look at a key early example of a big industry titan who did invest in social infrastructure. Maybe Zuckerberg could learn a thing or two from him. More of Minouche and Eric in a minute. Stick with us. Okay, so Andrew Carnegie, he's kind of a jerk, but he has this sense of wanting to do right by the people. 
Yeah, so he was a great monopolist and he was a ruthless employer. He brought in the Pinkertons to violently break up strikes and has a place in hell uh, in the annals of American labor history. And that said, he also is one of the great philanthropists in history who uh, whose lasting impact includes the um, construction of libraries uh, all over the world. So, you know, we'll see what happens to the class of billionaires who are currently, uh, you know, trying to justify their grotesque wealth by trying to do good things. History will tell us, you know, whether they can counterbalance some of the tough things that they're doing. By tough, I mean horrible things that they're doing to people who work for them now. But Carnegie, regardless of what we think about his life as an employer, was a great proponent of these social infrastructures. He believed uh, as an immigrant himself that people needed a place where they could better themselves, a place to read, a place to study, a place to teach their children to read, a place to form community, a place to learn a craft. And libraries are these incredibly special places because uh, they do all that. So when we say the term palaces for the people, are we just talking about libraries? Like what comes under this umbrella? Yeah, so so for me... Starbucks? Uh, if you can afford a $6 cup of coffee, it's a palace for you. You know, I think anyone who remembers that event in Philadelphia a few months ago when a couple African-American guys got not just kicked out but arrested for not ordering promptly enough while waiting for a friend knows that um, that's a pretty punitive palace if it's a palace at all. No, in fact, on the Lower East Side, very close to uh, the Seward Park Library, there's a bunch of places like Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts and McDonald's that either don't let you stay if you don't order promptly or have signs all over the walls saying no loitering. You know, if you're an affluent young white person, you could probably stay all day and they won't say anything. Uh, but if you're uh, poor, if you're very old, if you're a person of color, uh, that 30 minutes is a hard and fast deadline. Libraries are special places because they are so aggressively welcoming and because they provide so many different kinds of programming. You asked if Palaces for the People uh, refers specifically to libraries, and the answer is it does not. It's a it's really a metaphor or a, a useful concept for thinking about amenities, gathering places that we share and that deliver benefits for all of us, no matter who we are or how much money we have or the color of our skin. But there are other places that that help connect us in important ways too. Schools and childcare centers are crucial social infrastructures. Uh, there's a, a sociologist at Harvard named Mario Small, and he studied different childcare centers to see what happens in the daily life there. And he made this incredible comparison where he noted that one of the childcare centers he was studying really prided itself on efficiency. It wanted to help families with busy working parents. And it was clear that you could just drop off your kid and get out quickly. There were no expectations placed on you. But it turns out that efficiency, which we've prized in so many parts of our life, uh, is the enemy of social life. Because when you're hurrying to get to your next place, you're not lingering right. to talk to other people. And the other child care center that, that Mario studied was a place that required inefficiency. Parents had to stop and spend time with their child when they were at the drop-off or at the pickup. There was a gradual transition that they wanted to have. And they pushed parents to spend time in the kind of the collective areas. And what that meant is that families very quickly established trusting relationships mm -hmm. with one another. In fact, mothers came to trust each other so much so quickly that within days they were letting their 
children, their most precious thing in the world, go home with, get taken care of by people who they just met, right? I'll, I'll, can you watch her for a couple hours? I'll come back and pick her up. And, and by the way, I'll do this for you, you know, next time you're in a bind. It's just inevitable that we are going to spend hundreds of billions and then trillions of dollars on new infrastructure. Like the systems that we have to get us into modern life just don't work anymore. Yeah. Certainly not in this country. No. It, the subways are, you know, tired and broken down uh, and not up for the challenges of 21st century city. Our electrical grids fail whenever there's a big storm or a surge in use. Our, our, our roads are, are falling apart. It's awful and shameful and depressing how bad our infrastructure is. But the social infrastructure, which is equally real, has also been neglected. And so the reason that I'm kind of using this concept and trying to push it into our debates about what to do next is that when we start to recognize that things like libraries and parks and schools and playgrounds and childcare centers are this vital part of the social infrastructure, then we have a menu of options for making investments in the places we live that we otherwise wouldn't see. And, and I actually think that there are political leaders in this country right now who really get the value of social infrastructure, mm. mayors and governors. There are other countries where social infrastructure is a vital part of city making and society making. You know, in the Netherlands, for instance, I've spent a lot of time working with um, engineers and architects in the Netherlands uh, thinking about how to rebuild New York after Sandy. Right. Um, that was a project that I worked on with the Obama administration. Uh, and we learned a lot from the Dutch models. They are incorporating social infrastructure into everything that they do hmm. uh, when it comes to climate security. So when they build a flood protection system, you know, there's, there's things like seawalls, but there are also plazas and parks that function like ordinary plazas and parks, you know, 360 days a year. But on the five days when there's massive rain events, they raise the walls and they double into water basins and they capture water so and they cool. store it underground. It's amazing. But I don't know if, you, if you've ever been to Europe or Korea or Japan and you and you're there and you kind of are having this amazing time and you're seeing all these like public plazas and gathering places and great public transit systems, you know, the places that work really well. And then you come back to your American city and it's like, whoa, what, what is going on here? And how, how did I not see that this whole system was decrepit? Isn't it still the case that we're one of the wealthiest countries on earth? And where's all our public money going? We know now a lot of it's going to the Pentagon, and we know that a lot of it, sadly, is going back into the pockets of the wealthiest people who, for all their moral outrage at some of the excesses of the Trump administration, seem to be just fine with a deal because they're you know, going to come away with even more money to do what with? I don't know. But we're making really dumb decisions about uh, what to do with our public resources. I really think it's in our collective interest to understand this concept. Uh, social infrastructure is uh, the glue we need to put things back together. Hi again. It's Jed, Manusha's co-founder. I just want to say I loved how Eric linked public spaces to resiliency and real-life bonds. And where I'm standing right now really demonstrates that for me. 
I met one of my dearest and closest friends, the artist Susanna Ray, on this very boardwalk on a wintry day in 2011. We both were new moms, and we were feeling a little isolated out here in our new mom roles. And we saw each other pushing strollers around in combat boots and hoodies and thought, hmm, I see you. A year later, when Hurricane Sandy wreaked havoc on this boardwalk and our homes, we ended up making an art project together to document the destruction and then recovery here in Rockaway. Our kids are now seven years old and live just a few blocks away from each other. We surf together, we hang out on the beach together as families. And last year when Manoush and I were trying to figure out what to name our production company, Suzanne and her husband Rob suggested Stable Genius amidst much giggling between the three of us. Yes, we all probably would have met without the boardwalk, but man, did it help get our friendship off on the right foot. And when our community was knocked off its mooring and our homes were flooded, we all stayed and helped one another. Neighbors coming together. That is the American way. Okay, next week, Manoush is back. And so is a subject that we haven't talked much about on the last few episodes, blockchain. She's been working hard on quite an amazing tale of how blockchain has actually been used, not just theoretically, to win a cat and mouse game involving government censorship. No matter how many censors there are and what vast armies you deploy to scrub the truth from the web, we do have, as it were, a weapon going to be a really cool episode. This episode was produced by me and Manoush Zamarodi with help from Thalia Beatty. David Herman was our audio engineer and composer. And many thanks to our other audio engineer, Dan Zizula. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions in partnership with Civil. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Jen Poyant. Thanks so much for having me. See you next week. We both were pushing strollers. Was I with Patina at that point? Yes, I, I remember. my matching stroller to your matching stroller? Yeah, dude. I, I remember distinctly us being like, oh. I saw you saw me and I was like, I'm going to talk to this woman, which was is really weird because it's not something I do, but I was very desperate and very lonely. And I was like, <laughs> she has cool shoes and the same stroller as me, so I know we're going to be friends. I know. And that was seven years ago. Yeah, that was seven years ago. Holy mackerel. <laughs> you can say holy. We can curse on your show. I forgot. Holy shit. <laughs>